This is How Did I Get This Far, a podcast tackling the basic skills and knowledge that we all completely missed learning. Soon enough, you'll stop having to ask yourself, how did I get this far? On this episode, we acknowledge that a lot will be changing around the topic of immigration in America. But let's get the basics. It's time to find out, how did I understand immigration this far? Hello to all the listeners here, there, and everywhere. Today, we are opening up about the basics on immigration in the United States. Our expert guest is Tamina Watson. Tamina is a nationally acclaimed immigration lawyer and the founder of Watson Immigration Law in Seattle, Washington. Tamina's passion for immigration reform also led to her founding two nonprofits, writing a book and a blog about immigration, and hosting a radio show turned podcast called Tamina Talks Immigration. On top of that massive resume, Tamina is a U.S. immigrant herself. Tamina, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. What was your personal journey um, immigrating to the United States? Was that your inspiration for pursuing a career in it? Or what else might have been your passion for immigration reform? Well, you know, I always wanted to be a lawyer. There were lawyers in my family. I was uh, very small, very young when I aspired to becoming a lawyer. But coming to the United States... um, just happened to be in my fate. I was born and raised in London. I became a lawyer in in the United Kingdom. Um, They call them barristers. I was a barrister in the UK. And what's interesting is nobody knew what a barrister is in the US until George Clooney married one. So now I say, oh, he did me a favor because now I'm not a coffee, you know, server (laughs) anymore. (laughs) Confused with barista. Sounds like barista. (laughs) So you're a barista. What has that got to do with law? You know, so um, <laughs> that's that's what I wanted to be, and I was one in the UK. But I was a baby barrister when I met my husband, and I met my husband, who is a US uh, citizen. He is originally from the East Coast, but moved to the West Coast in Seattle, where we live now. And I met him on a blind date when I came to Seattle to visit, and I call it in Seattle now. It was a long distance relationship for three years before I moved here. I didn't move here for a career or, um, you know, a passion for immigration at all. I moved here because my dream man was here. And I had to go through the immigration process to, you know, live here. And I also had to go through the education system Uh, I only took the bar exams, but that was difficult enough to requalify as a lawyer. And as a lawyer uh, who got a license from the, from New York, that's the place I could get it from because I was qualified in the UK. Living in Washington State wasn't necessarily a good fit. Um, and I fell into immigration because it's a federal area of law, meaning that if you have a law license from any state, you can practice federal law. And immigration uh, fell on my lap. Um, I've pushed it away many, many times. And it was my vocation. And until I succumbed to the calling, I didn't know it. And the first day of practicing immigration law, I realized, my goodness, this is exactly what I wanted to do with my life. I just didn't know it. And I didn't know U.S. immigration law was going to be so interesting, complex, uh, intellectually challenging, and so impactful. I'm able to actually see a case from beginning to end in, you know, maybe two, three years, depending on the type of case it is. But I get to see the end of it, and I see the huge impact it has on my clients. I'm either reuniting loved ones 
or I am helping businesses grow. I'm helping dreams come true. And um, actually, I do say this to some people. I don't tell my clients this, but the moment a client says, oh, doing such and such is my dream, I'm suddenly like, oh, my God, they said the magic words. I've really got to just make sure no stone is unturned to help them uh, make their dreams come true because mine came true here. And so that's how I became passionate about it. But what was really key is that as I started to practice immigration law and became more and more experienced, I realized the law is broken. You know, no matter who I'm helping, the law is from so long ago, from the 1950s and 60s, that it doesn't necessarily fit the modern day situations. And when I realized that so many people could benefit, but also America could benefit from modern immigration laws, that I realized that's where the passion sort of drives um, to. Because if I'm an expert in the law, I, I, ha I feel compelled to be able to be the voice for my clients. That's beautiful. And I do want to touch on all of the social issues and, and the future that we would love to see for immigration law. But I'm sure there are people listening that are like, I don't even know what any of this means. So we're going to start with the absolute basics. Um, so with immigration, there are different types of ways of coming into a country. Can we just go over the different types of citizenship and visas? What do all of those look like? That's a great question. And let's break it down a little. Let's give them headings. And so the U.S. immigration system, it really does have um, uh, basic grounds for coming here. Uh, so there's the family-based immigration. There's employment-based immigration. And then there are the other categories, which, you know, includes asylum and refugees and the diversity lottery. Um, when it comes to family-based immigration, what is important to know is in the last four years, a lot of misconceptions have been put out there. And the fact is that for family-based immigration, you can only apply for your immediate family. So if you think of a dartboard, um, there's the bullseye and then the the circles go you know further out family-based immigration is like that if you are sponsoring a spouse or a parent or a child minor child they're in that bullseye their immediate relative and their applications are relatively quick it's however long it takes to process but if your child is over 21 they sort of become one layer out and the waiting time is a little bit longer. Um, if you are a green card holder applying for a child or a spouse, you're sort of in that outer layer as well. You can apply for siblings and you can apply for children who are married as well, but they sort of get outside of those uh, further and further away from bullseye, if you like. And the waiting time is reflected by that. What they cannot apply for are aunts and grandparents and cousins and you name it. And that's the kind of misinformation that has been put out there in recent years. And so, you know, your listeners might be familiar with a term that has become part of the modern day vernacular, chain migration. It wasn't a word before, but it's a word. I mean, it was a word before, but it wasn't used so much. But it's been given a derogatory connotation at this point because you're saying that you're applying for everybody in your family, and that's not true. So that's family-based immigration. Employment-based immigration is employers applying for talented, high-skilled folks or, um, you know, um, anything that is to do with employment. So you're 
dairy farm workers or people who are coming to catch fish or pick apples, um, people who are geniuses. You know, a lot of people might remember the news headlines about the first lady having, quote unquote, a genius visa. Um, and so all of those are employment-based immigration. Also, if you're coming here to invest in a business or open a business, that is also part of employment-based. And everybody's familiar, I hope, with asylum and refugees. Uh, asylum is when your life is um, under threat. You're being persecuted for number of reasons and they are a narrow number of reasons uh, or refugees if you've been displaced from your own country because of war or something else uh, those are the the foundational issues uh, and bases for immigration there are a handful of others and um, when you come to the United States, there are quotas. If you think about a pie chart, uh, there are, there's, there's a segment that's set for family-based, there's a segment that's set for employment-based. And then if I take that bullseye sort of dartboard um, analogy again, the waiting time for when you get these green cards will also depend on which category you're in. So that's the basic foundation. Uh, in 1960, when the current law was passed, family unity was uh, given priority and importance. Um, what's happened uh, in, in the 2000s and 2020, particularly technology and globalization, they've made our world so different from how it was in the 60s that the laws that were passed at that time haven't been modernized since. And so that's what needs to change. It needs to change with the current times where technology is taken into account. The modern day of working is take, taken into account. Globalization is taken into account so that these systems can be updated. Okay, you covered so many of my questions, because I was going to ask what gets prioritized. Um, and you're saying family um, is what's prioritized? Yeah, so what happens is these employment based cases, and family based cases, they all have their own sort of part in the pie, if you like. And these are generally referred to as quotas. And how fast you get your green card depends on how close you are to bullseye. I see. And, and so the bullseye in the employment based is, are you a Nobel Prize winner? Are you a genius? Do you have a master's degree? So if you have one of those, then you're in bullseye, you're not going to take that long. But if you're a master's degree holder or a, a bachelor's degree holder, you get further and further away from, from that timeline. And that's how long it can be. Some people, and it also depends on which country you're from. So these quotas are divided by country as well as category in which you fall. How do they determine what country gets priority over another? Oh, that's a really great question. And in fact, it's a very timely question. Every country gets 77% um, of this pie chart, if you like. And then, of course, it sort of narrows down into, you know, these various categories. And what has happened over time, this is why it needs to be modernized, is that, you know, somebody who's coming from Sweden, not a lot of people are coming from Sweden, and it's a smaller country, they get 7%, just like China gets 7%. But China is a bigger country with a lot, you know, more people and a lot more people coming to the United States. That their 7% actually means that they become positioned in a line. And that line gets determined where you are in this bullseye. If I could, uh, you know, draw a 
pie for you, just like a pizza pie, that's a part of a segment of the bigger pie chart. Um, it basically is that where, where do you fall into it? Mm, I can't show you because my Zoom uh, screen isn't working. But if you're that Nobel Prize winner from Sweden, let's say, you're not going to wait very long to get a green card. Right. But if you are a bachelor's degree holder in, as a software engineer from China, you're now going to be waiting 15 years maybe, wow. you know. And so that's how the system has not necessarily kept up with times. Mm -hmm. And immigration reform is so important. And the reason I mentioned it so timely, it's because there is a bill that is currently going through Congress in which they're trying to get rid of this 7% quota because people from India and China are unfairly waiting in this line for decades. And some of the side problems that come out of this waiting time is that if you have children, they can get, they can get green cards as part of your application, but only if they are under 21. Now, if you've been waiting in this green card line for more than the time your child becomes 21, your child is now not part of your green card anymore application. And so there are many unintended problems that have derived from this law that is so old, and that's why it needs to be reformed. And now this bill going through Congress is trying to address it. But what we really need is uh, comprehensive immigration reform. One of the things to note, and I hope your listeners will appreciate this, your ankle bone is connected to your knee bone that's connected to your hip bone. And if you tr try to have a reform of a very complex system like immigration law in the United States, if you try to fix one thing without fixing all the other problems, you're still going to be left with a lopsided system. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just a lopsidedness is going, shifting to a different side. And so it's so important that we have immigration reform, particularly in this economy. You know, I, one of the things that I, um, I, my first book was called The Startup Visa. And I'm actually in the process of having my second edition of that. But immigrant entrepreneurs are known to create jobs and help the economy and give us a global name. And immigration reform should actually create a new visa category. Actually, with the 7% and, and these different um, timelines, I'm kind of curious, what is, do you know the average um, annual, uh, like the number of people that come to the United States annually? Is there, is there mm -hmm. like a goal or is there just like, okay, this happens to be the number of people we get applying every year? What does that look like? You are asking some amazing questions oh, because these are some of the basics. From an employment perspective, employment-based, there is a cap to it. You can only have 140,000 green cards given under that heading. Okay. Okay. When it comes to family-based, you can have a minimum of 226,000 green cards a year. You can have a little more depending on where, you know, there are some, you know, um, unused green cards, but those are the basic numbers. And so to answer your question, there is absolutely a goal and those goals are always met all the time and the waiting time exceeds that significantly, which is why comprehensive immigration reform needs to raise the total numbers and so it can actually deal with the people that are waiting in line already. With people waiting 
and the reason also playing into what will determine how long they take. Can you decide to move to a country just because? Like, do you have to have a reason? That's a really good question. In America, yes, you must absolutely have one of those reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a typical client who will come to us will say, hey, you know, I really want to start a business in America. How do I do it? And then we go through a number of questions and we do the assessments, but the requirements truly are set. In some countries, um, and Bahamas recently did this, you can have a visa just to stay there for some time. You know, and they're called nomad visas. There are a lot of, you know, in this modern day, digital nomads, you know, Bali, for example, Mm -hmm. has these digital nomad visas. Thailand has them. We don't have that. Um, We don't have a visa where retired people could go and just hang out for some time, you know, and it would be good for us because people want to just live in Florida in the sun and surf, you know, and just be there for six months out of the year. We don't have a visa like that. So the categories we have are very defined and they're very much square peg, square hole. Got it. Okay. Well, let's move in a little bit to some of the social issues. Um, So what are these concerns that people have? Are they valid? What might be some of the risks with having people come into the country? And and are they something for us to really be concerned about? Yeah, I give you the top two. Number one um, is immigrants are coming and taking our benefits. They're taking government benefits. The answer is no. They're not eligible to do that when um, maybe some asylum seekers, when they finally get their asylum, will be entitled to something and refugees might be entitled to something. But that's it. If you are a green card holder coming into the U.S., you cannot get anything um, at all. You have to become a citizen to actually have um, some Social Security benefits. If you're undocumented, you absolutely do not get any benefit. What undocumented people do do, they pay taxes in the United States, even though they do not get any benefit from it, they pay full taxes just like you and I. And so what's interesting is the social security funds that you see, a large portion of it is thanks to the undocumented uh, immigrants who are contributing to it. So that's something people don't understand at all. The second top, the top second I'd say is immigrants and coming and taking our jobs away. And That is also not true in the way that people, you know, made to think it is. When a high-skilled immigrant is coming into the country, let's say, let's take different types. My clients are small to medium-sized employers. What I hear time and time again, and I'm in Seattle, you know, a tech hub, they will tell you that they can't find uh, workers unless they sponsor them. You know, most of the people coming here at university doing STEM education, science, technology, engineering, math, they're often from India and China. American students typically do not want to take those subjects. They take politics or, you know, economics and, you know, international affairs. They're not necessarily taking these subject matters in which, you know, the industry is booming. And so, if you look at our phone, you, just look at your phone, you'll see the technology that is driving the network and hardware and software. They're all, you know, maintained by foreign high-skilled immigrants. So if you talk to any employer, you'll find that it's difficult to find them. So in my opinion, they're not taking these jobs. Um, when it comes to the agricultural industry, you'll hear a lot of people say, well, they're taking our jobs. What jobs are they taking? 
American citizens traditionally do not want to be picking apples in farms, doing backbreaking, laborious work. They're not going to Alaska in the cold, you know, um, risking their lives in the ocean to catch fish and salmon. They're not going to a dairy farm trying to get milk and you know produce dairy so you will talk to any farmer and they will tell you farmers who are owners who are american citizens they will tell you that they cannot find american workers to do this job and so what is the solution to that we need comprehensive immigration reform again why are these industries struggling to have um you know workers in their industries that's a good point um, okay, I have kind of a, a different type of question. Can getting married just to get a green card really work? And if so, or if not, what are your thoughts on that show 90 Day Fiance? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Well, first of all, 90 days, let's get that out of the way. <laughs> I think the producers had emailed a lot of lawyers to get, you know, potential clients of ours to sign up. I got those emails too, but none of my clients were interested. But it's been interesting to see how that show has become so popular. But I haven't watched the show enough to tell you what happens in their real lives. But what I can tell you is before they come to the United States, they've had probably gone through uh, at least a couple of years of paperwork. Mm -hmm. And so a fiancé visa is essentially a, um, a promise to get married, to come to the United States, and then get married and get a green card. But one of the requirements is that you must have met each other at least in the last two years in person. It's an actual mm, requirement. Okay. And so these people that you see likely have met those requirements to get those approvals. So they would have filed a form called I-129F. They would have had to have submitted a lot of proof to say we are in a relationship, look at our flights to see each other and photos together and receipts at restaurants and hotels and family members who love us. And after that, the foreign immigrant would have had an interview at the embassy to verify whether they're really in love or not. Okay. And then they come to the U.S. and then they have 90 days to get married. You have to get married and file your papers within those 90 days. Otherwise, after 90 days, you're illegal. You must leave the country. And you have to come to the United States to marry the person that is your fiancé. You cannot come here, fall out of love and marry somebody else your K-1 will be considered invalid and your marriage green card will not be accepted if you marry somebody else. So it's very important to understand some of those basics. But to get married to get a green card, it's, you know, it's interesting. There's a misconception that, yes, you can get married and get a green card. The answer is it is not that easy. It is so intrusive a process and it is so um, invasive and it's very paperwork heavy. And the government will absolutely investigate you inside out before they give you a green card. They're looking at whether this is actually a relationship before, before you file the paperwork. Hey, if you were, you know, engaged, what were you doing when you were engaged? Were you going out together? And if you're in different countries, it's easier to give paperwork, you know, flight tickets, emails. If you're in the same city living under the same roof, often it's not as easy to give that joint paperwork. But maybe you have a lease together and bills together 
but you're also showing evidence to prove you're a boring married couple, doing boring <laughs> married, married things, going to Safeway, paying your taxes, <laughs> paying the bills. And are those bills coming in two names and one address? You've got to prove that. You have to be showing that you're integrated in your finances as well as your family. Mm-hmm. You know, are you spending Christmas with the family members? Do you have pictures showing your mother-in-law hugging you to death? You know, that, I'm exaggerating a little, right, but you, right. um, and then part of it is also the U.S. citizen is sponsoring this person and showing financial ability to maintain this person. And so they're giving their tax returns and promising whether they remain married or not, that they will continue to sponsor this person and pay for their basic expenses. And so the additional thing that's been added is that the Mm -hmm. foreign citizen now needs to show their own financial self-sufficiency. So they have to show their health and that they're not sick and, you know, not going to be able to work. They have to show their education, that they are eligible to, to able to work, their skills, that they have some skills to show. And they can speak English and their assets, their savings, their, you know, belongings. And so not only does the U.S. citizen have to show their financial capability in 2020, the foreign-born immigrant also has to show their income. And that's a very hefty part of this process that's been um, added. And that's why it's been part of litigation. It's been on again, off again, on again. And as an immigration lawyer, I can't tell you how dizzy I feel (laughs) from it because I wake up, I'm like, are we on again or off again? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you had mentioned some of the things that could happen that could cause this person to not be eligible to be a citizen or to have a green card. What happens if someone's not eligible and they're already in the country? Like, what does that look like? I know there's deportation. Does it go right to that? Is it actually like how it is in the movies where it's like they bang on the door and I don't know, kick you out? What what happens? It could happen. It could happen. It depends on what your current status is when you are filing for your green card. So when we talked about employment base, one of the things I didn't mention is there are two types. There's non-immigrant visas and immigrant visas. Non-immigrant visas are people who are, or temporary visas rather, Temporary visas are people who are coming here for a temporary period. You're coming here on a work visa for a set amount of time to meet those set criteria. And the most popular one is an H-1B visa. But there's something called a TN visa, you know, Treaty NAFTA. If you're from Mexico or Canada, that's temporary. If you're coming here as a transfer, you worked at Microsoft London, you're moving here to Microsoft headquarters. That's a temporary visa called an L visa. There's an O visa. It depends on what visa category you're in when you receive that denial. But if you're a non-immigrant visa with a denial, you can't go back to that non-immigrant visa, temporary visa. In that case, you can probably expect, um, you know, paperwork to show that we're now going to put you in court. Um, You don't necessarily get somebody banging on your door immediately, although that has happened in the last four years a lot for people who are simply undocumented and have been found out, if you like, because they had a criminal conviction. Now they're in the police database and now they're in the jail system. So it really depends on your current status to see what is actually going to happen. But if you have come here on what's called ESTA, uh, people from um, various parts of Europe, Australia, not Canada, New Zealand, they come here on a 90-day program as a visitor. In that case, you are waiving 
your rights to a court hearing, actually. It's an electronic system for travel authorization. And because you're not getting a visa, so to speak, you're here for that 90 days. And if you're denied your green card, you can expect deportation without um, a hearing because you waived it as part of this visa waiver program. That's what it's called. So the summary of the answer is it depends. Yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to make sure I gave you the long answer before I said it depends. <laughs> no, that's good because I actually did want to go over the different types of visas a little bit. So I'm glad we, we kind of touched on them. Um, okay, great. Well, I'd love to end a little bit more on a uplifting note. What would you say are the benefits of having immigrants come into our country and, and create the culture that they add into the country? Oh my gosh, so much. I mean, you, if, you, if you just think about the history for a moment and then think about today's modern day immigrants. When America became America, it's because of the European settlers who came here and they developed the economy and they developed America. That is, we are a country of immigrants. I mean, we're all immigrants, whether you're first, second, third, fourth or fifth, you are descendants of immigrants. And that is something people forget all the time. So I want to remind people that somebody in your family is an immigrant. And, you know, so those are the settlers. And if you fast forward a little bit, the East Coast and the West Coast, we were brought together because of the rail tracks we have. Who built those? It was the Asian labor force that came here. What a tremendous contribution they've made that really made America become America. You know, I would really encourage people to read my first book called The Startup Visa because the first chapter is just a summary of the history of the exact question that you've asked. And some of the household names that you don't associate as immigrants are immigrant created. Nordstrom, the Levi's jeans that you wear, he's from Europe. If you think about the headphones, Bose and the sound system, immigrant, those are some older names. If you think about New York, Andrew Carnegie, who uh, developed a new kind of steel and made New York the tall city that it is because of the steel. Immigrant, there are immigrants who are part of the foundation of this country. But if you think about today, today Zoom is your ultimate example of what immigrants have done to this country. Zoom has become the foundation of our COVID life, whether you're homeschooling or seeing your doctor or seeing your lawyer or doing your meetings with your clients. Zoom, it has kept our economy going. But did you know the founder of Zoom was denied his visa eight times? before he was allowed to be here. <laughs> that is crazy. Right? And then, you know, you're using your phone, WhatsApp, immigrant. You know, there are so many examples of how immigrants have made this country richer. And I could go on and on and on forever. Um, Madeleine Albright is an immigrant. She was the refugee, the founder of Chobani, who has created so many jobs. Refugee. So, you know, immigrants get the job done. <laughs> that seems very accurate. <laughs> um, well, I love that. Do you, so I know you mentioned that this is in your book. Uh, are there any other resources or projects that you have uh, where people can learn more? 
Yeah. So my two books, you can find them on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. The Startup Visa is my first book. And I'd love for people to read that because I think it's very timely about the pandemic and economic recovery and why we need that visa. And of course, it has the history of immigrant contributions. I'd love for people to read my current book that just came out. It's called Legal Heroes in the Trump Era. And you might have to invite me again sometime so I can talk about what I have done in the last four years. But it's a summary of what I've done and what other lawyers have done for immigrants and other civil rights issues to uphold the rule of law. But I have a podcast too called Tamina Talks Immigration. It's on iTunes um, and Spotify and other places. And then I have a blog on my website. My website is watsonimmigrationlaw.com and slash blog. And then I just started a public facing Facebook page. And so it's Tamina Watson on Facebook. And I'm on LinkedIn. I mean, you can't miss me. Just Google me and you'll find me. No question is too small or too big. Well, thank you. And I do appreciate you answering my questions that to you are probably like, really, this girl did not know this stuff. So I appreciate you uh, dumbing it down for me, something that is comes off very intimidating. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much for asking such good questions, because I know that these are very important questions for general understanding. Mm -hmm. And so you did an amazing job asking me really great questions. Thank you for that. Thank you. That is actually extremely reassuring. So thank you very much for saying that. Well, keep it up. Thank you. Um, And to everyone who tuned in, thank you for being open to this conversation. And we'll break down the basics on another topic soon. Bye. Bye. I hope this episode helped. Please subscribe, rate and review to support the podcast. And follow along for more hacks, tips, and failed attempts on Instagram at How Did I Get This Far Pod. Well, that's as far as we will get for now. I'm Amanda Ogan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>